Thanks for listening to the podcast from River's Edge Church in Spokane, Washington. For more information or to gather with us on Sunday, visit our website at respokane.org. We hope this message is impactful for you and others as we pursue the way of Jesus together. Great to be with you this morning. My name is Matt, for those of you who I haven't met. And we are continuing in our series through the book of Matthew. So if you uh, have a Bible, go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 19, verse 16. And if you don't have a Bible, then get one. Uh, We've got free Bibles in the back, so uh, if you want to borrow one for the day or if you don't own one, uh, please go ahead and take one of those home and uh, make it your own. Uh, We believe that the scriptures are uh, the authoritative word of God and that when we uh, study them week in and week out as a community and even as individuals throughout the week, that that's a a profitable time, that it's uh, fruitful, that it's worth our while uh, to do that. And so uh, as we open up the scriptures together this morning, I'm going to say a quick prayer for us. Jesus. Uh, Thank you, God, for uh, creating us, uh, for loving us, for calling us by name and calling us into your kingdom, and for uh, giving us increasing knowledge of who you are. And uh, as we open up the pages of Scripture this morning, I pray that you would continue that process of opening our eyes to who you are and helping us understand how we are to live in light of you, in light of who you are, in light of uh, what comes next. So would you um, give us that wisdom, God, and would you uh, fill us with your spirit that empowers us to live the life that you call us to live. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, we uh, pick up in Matthew chapter 19, verse 16. It says this, Just then, a man came up to Jesus and asked, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Why do you ask me about what is good? Jesus replied. There is only one who is good. If you want to enter life, keep the commandments. Which ones? he inquired. And Jesus replied, You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother and love your neighbor as yourself. All of these I have kept, the young man said. What do I still lack? Jesus answered, If you want to be perfect, go, sell your possessions and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I tell you, it is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, and they asked, Who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Peter answered him, We have left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and many who are last will be first. All right. So a a fascinating text before us this morning. Many of you have heard this story uh, before, but the basic outline is that a rich young ruler comes to Jesus, engages in a discussion about eternal life, and leaves sad. 
And in the aftermath, the disciples are left wondering if they are saved and what's waiting for them on the other side of death. And this uh, short account that we just read is as rich and layered as any account in the Bible. But because we only have a few minutes together this morning, there's just a few things that I want us to notice. And the first is this incredible question that the rich young ruler asks at the start of the text. He says, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? And while there are good things about the rich young ruler, including the the urgency with which he comes to Jesus, at the same time, this question reveals a number of flaws in his thinking that are going to play out through the course of the conversation. And all of it is right here in the question. Based on this question, he seems to think that Jesus is simply a teacher that eternal life is a thing, and that I earn that thing by doing good things. Do you see that? But Jesus' answer is going to challenge all of these basic assumptions. And what gets revealed is that Jesus is actually more than a teacher, that eternal life is more than just a thing, and that therefore the way to eternal life is, is greater than an issue of morality. In fact, Jesus blows up all of these categories when he says, I am the way, the truth, and the what? Life. Okay, so let's try and wrap our minds around this if we can. Is the truth a thing or a person? It's a person. The truth is a person. Eternal life is a person. The way to eternal life is a person. So if someone comes to Jesus to ask about eternal life, what do you think a fitting response would be? Probably, here I am. Come, follow me. Which is ultimately what he's going to say to this young man. And in the modern age, it's worth noting that we're still asking the question that the rich young ruler is asking. We're still asking, what must I do to inherit eternal life? The difference is, in my opinion, that instead of asking Jesus and waiting for a response to that question, instead we ask the question and then we answer it for ourselves. Uh, But uh, the modern day version sounds something like this. I don't know if there is such thing as eternal life, but if there is, I'm worthy of it. Which, skepticism aside, is essentially what the rich young ruler is saying. Uh, There's a sense in which he's coming to Jesus, uh, yes, to ask about eternal life, but with the assumption that he is already worthy of that life. He's male in a male-dominant society. He is uh, Jewish in a world where that meant everything. He's rich in in the ancient world where far too few people had wealth to spare. And, um, And so that would have been a sign in the ancient world that, of course, he has favor with God. He's in God's favor because he's one of the few chosen rich. He's also a ruler, a person of fame, a person of influence. Luke implies in his gospel that he's a well-known, influential 
person. He has power and fame. And on top of all of that, he's a good moral person. He, he follows the Torah or the law of Moses. And uh, Jesus recognizes that. I mean, if anyone has God's favor, it, it's this guy. If anyone uh, should be assured of their salvation, it's, it's this guy. Which is why, uh, after this young man's departure, the disciples say, uh, who then can be saved? Like, if this guy isn't saved, he is not an inheritor of eternal life, then nobody is. He has all the markers of someone who, in their view, should inherit eternal life. So when the young man comes to Jesus and he says, I've kept all these commandments, what else do I lack? The obvious answer is nothing. He doesn't think he lacks anything. No one does. And and the disciples are raising their hand in the background. Oh, Jesus, I can answer that. Pick me, pick me. Nothing. He lacks nothing. He has every single marker. He's he's checked every box. He, He has it all. Surely, he will be a recipient of eternal life. And yet the answer that this uh, rich young ruler receives is ultimately going to be offensive to him, so offensive that he walks away. And it is an answer that is still offensive to our culture today. What do you mean I have to follow Jesus? What do you mean Jesus is the only way to eternal life. I mean, that's so exclusive. Jesus is a stumbling block in part because eternal life is not a neatly packaged gift that we receive from him in isolation of him. In fact, Jesus says, I am the resurrection, and the life. Eternal life is a person, and that causes many to stumble, including uh, the rich young ruler who goes away sad. And while the question that he poses to Jesus reveals a number of flaws in his uh, thinking, it is actually his name which reveals his true reasons for leaving. Do you see the difference? The the rich young ruler uh, doesn't leave simply because he's discovering that eternal life is a person and not just a thing. That's confusing, but the reason that he leaves uh, is because of his name. He comes in thinking... Jesus is just a good teacher, eternal life is a thing, and I earn that thing by doing good things. And notice that all of those assumptions are almost universal across the entire non-Christian world, worldwide, throughout history. Aside from followers of Jesus, this is what the rest of the world pretty much assumes. But the the, the reason that he leaves is not because all of this is getting flipped on its head. The reason that he leaves is because there's all of these other things in his life, things that he has, things he possesses, that he's going to value more than the person who is eternal life. And the key is in his name. Uh, He is referred to simply as the rich, young ruler. And Luke's gospel, again, hints that he is a famous or well-known. And uh, you know what I love most uh, about the rich, young ruler is that his name contains the three great idols of American culture. 
It says if they, they ripped someone out of 21st century America and dropped them awkwardly into the pages of Scripture, strolling through the scene, walking up to Jesus with a question. And I know that as we approach the text, we would like to think that we are the disciples. Because technically speaking, most of us in the room today are disciples or followers of Jesus. Uh, But culturally speaking, we have more in common with the rich young ruler than we do with the first disciples. First off, we're rich. And I know what you're thinking. No, 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 no. I'm not rich. But we have to recognize what a comparative statement that is. Because too often, I'm not rich. Uh, What that really means is, well, there are, I know people who are richer than me. Or I really do wish that I had more money. But here's how to tell if you are rich, globally speaking. One, are you worried about where your next meal will come from? Most of the world is. Number two, do you have an insulated house that you get to sleep in more often than not? Number three, Do you travel on something that's powered by gasoline or a bike that costs as much as my car? (laughs) Number four, do you sit on a white throne-like mechanism in order to relieve yourself? (laughs) And and do you use a, a softened disposable paper to clean up afterward? Most of the world does not. Globally speaking, we are rich. We are the wealthiest society in the history of the world. We are 5% of the world's population and we use a quarter of its resources. By all measurable standards, whether you feel this way or not, you are rich. The second is fame. Uh, Americans are not all famous, but most of us wish that we were. It has uh, become, in recent decades, central to our culture. We have shifted from a culture of character, who a few of you might be old enough to remember. When America was a culture of character, we are now a culture of celebrity. And and most of us in the room don't even remember, don't have a frame of reference for when we were not a celebrity culture where fame carries the day. It is the new social capital. It is this new form of power sought after by most. And regardless of who you voted for in the last election, you have to admit that we stepped into new territory. Because for the first time ever, we voted in someone with zero political experience into the highest political office in the land. And some of you think that's a good thing, and it was time for that. And and some of you think that's a bad thing. But we can all agree that it's a new thing. And and I think it's evidence of, of the celebrity culture that's taking root in America. And it's not the last time that we're going to see it on either side of the aisle. Because we live in in this interesting new world where, where celebrity is celebrated and it's power. Fame is power and power is fame. I'm actually old enough that I can remember when the first reality TV shows came out. Like before this, it was like all sitcoms and laugh tracks and and, and all of that. And all of a sudden, it was like season one of Survivor 
for those of you who remember. And it was like this bizarre new form of entertainment, unscripted, no laugh tracks, they're just real people doing real stuff. And, and the nation was captivated by this new form of entertainment. And really early on in uh, the movement, they, they came out with this show uh, about the Hilton sisters. Does anybody remember that? And I remember, I was a teenager in high school, and, and go over to my friend's house, and what are we going to do? Oh, well, we have to watch this new show. And we're sitting there watching it, and I, like, can't figure out what we're watching, okay? I'm like, wait, there's no laugh track? Like, what is it? And I said, who are these people? Like, who are the Hilton sisters, and why are millions of us watching them? And they said, oh, well, uh, they're just these sisters, and they're really famous. I thought, oh, okay, like, what are they famous for? You know, like, what did they do? Like, win a Nobel Peace Prize? Or like, you know, like, did they do something to contribute to, like, why are they famous? And there was always this pause of like, well, they're rich. And they're famous. And we watch them because they're famous. And, and I just had to keep asking people. And as, as a teenager, I could not comprehend it. It, like, it, it did not compute. Wait a second, they've literally done nothing, but they're famous, and now we're watching them because they're famous. Wait a second, they're only famous because you're watching them. Like, it was this bizarre new thing that I just couldn't understand. Like, what, what is that? They're rich because they're famous, and they're famous because they're rich. It, it was mind-boggling. And yet we have this whole class of people in America who fall into this category. And fame is quickly becoming the new American dream. A recent poll of uh, high schoolers uh, asked them, hey, what's your goal for after you graduate? And in this, in this poll, the number one result, the goal for their lives was to be famous. It's no longer a achievement or goal-oriented or even being rich. It's being famous. And, and the irony is that we, if we had to choose now between being rich and hidden, unknown, or poor and famous, we would actually rather be famous. And so you can go and ask too many high schoolers, hey, you know, what do you want to do with your life? And they'll say, oh, you know, be famous. And you're like, oh, that's weird. Like, be famous for what? Oh, you know, I don't know. I'll figure it out along the way. But, you know, I, I'm going to be famous for something. And, and with the age of the Internet, it's actually strangely achievable Everyone has an iPhone. Anyone can take a video and have it go viral. And because it's so achievable, because it feels within reach, it has only fueled our desire for it. In America, we are rich. We love fame. And finally, in a sense, we worship youth. And youth is as serious an idol in our country as wealth or fame. Uh, Americans have drunk deeply from the well of Hellenism, in which youth and beauty are to be exalted and projected and celebrated and disproportionately so, to the point where it becomes an obsession. And, and this has infiltrated every aspect uh, of our thinking. Culture. I think this is part of what fuels uh, the over-sexualization of our culture. And, and even in, in a microcosm, if you think about uh, the problem of pornography in our nation, and even the way that that pornography is marketed to youth, and, and the way that our pornography features increasingly young individuals within it, it, it it's all built on this foundation of what we choose to worship. I want you to think about the cover of our magazines. I want you to think about the people, back to celebrity culture, who are the people that we know 
and love and celebrate. It's not just that we have celebrity culture. It's who makes it as a celebrity. It, it's, it's young, beautiful people. It is so much a part of our culture that we can hardly envision the alternative. The only old people who we celebrate are the ones who miraculously still look young. And that's basically why we celebrate them. That's how you make the front of a magazine as an old person. Oh my gosh, they still look young. (laughs) The rest of the old people are all hidden away, out of sight, out of minds, in nursing homes, separated from family, separated from the rest of society, um, and, and out of the way. And the youngest, most beautiful people take center stage and get magnified for the world to see. I think this is part of what drives the sick aspects of the fashion industry and, and Botox and body enhancement surgeries and our desire to genetically engineer babies and the midlife crisis and our general fear of growing old. Our love of youthful beauty has permeated every aspect of our daily existence. Few things are more exalted than being young and beautiful, unless you're young, beautiful, and rich. Then you get a reality TV show. And, and we would buy that youth if we could. If we could bottle it up and buy it. And yet all of these things tend to simply distract us from the call of God. I recently heard of a, a Latin supermodel who had announced that she was becoming a nun. And the people went nuts. I mean, the reaction to this announcement, uh, people were like shocked, almost offended. People were upset. They were confused. They couldn't figure it out. Why? Why is that so hard for us? It's because we sense that there's a tension between youthful beauty and and fame and following Jesus in, in radical obedience. Youthful beauty is a form of power that entitles us to all this stuff in the world. The world says if you're young and beautiful, you get glory, you get attention, you get followers, you have permission to be narcissistic, you should be sexually sought after by others and, and celebrated in that way, and all of that is going to conflict with genuine and radical discipleship to Jesus. Like, you you can't walk in both of those at the same time. You you can't claim entitlement to both of those worlds in the same moment. I mean, why a supermodel who wants to follow Jesus with everything? Why is that an oxymoron? Why is that non-existent? Why does that feel so difficult? It must be because we believe that youthful beauty entitles us to something that that stands in opposition to discipleship to Jesus. And when you look around our culture today, there are very few people who are young and beautiful and rich who want to follow Jesus or have anything to do with him. I bet you could count on one hand the number of people in America that you know that that's true of. I mean, humanity hasn't changed a bit. We have more rich young rulers than we've ever had before, but the heart of humanity hasn't changed. It's still hard for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. And here's the thing that we're not even ready to talk about yet. And that is that the people who are young and rich and beautiful are oftentimes miserable as well. 
the very things we lift up as idols in our culture, the very things which we ourselves are, are drawn to seek after. You look at those people and they're not fulfilled and they're not happy and they don't have direction and they don't have hope. Do you know what the suicide rate is among the mega rich? It's, it's insane. It, it's higher than the mega poor by magnitudes. Do you know what winning the lottery does to people's lives? Consistently, it destroys them. The, the combination of wealth and fame absolutely destroys them. Consistently. And I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, yeah, but it wouldn't happen to me. I could win the lottery and I'd be okay. Oh my gosh, how did he know I was thinking that? <laughs> because I think that. I literally think that I could win the lottery and I would be okay. That I'm not like those other people. And yet time after time after time, they're absolutely destroyed. What is that? Why, that's us banging our head against the same wall over and over again, hoping to find life in something that simply cannot give us the life that we desire. And yet we keep hungering and we keep wishing and we keep thirsting for that thing. If I could only be rich, if I could only be famous, if I could only stay young, and the biblical worldview says, that is not where life is found. It's not. Life, true life, life that is truly life, is found in Jesus and nowhere else. And the culture says, be famous, be well known, get likes, blow up, exalt yourself, become a household name, get your 15 minutes of fame. How else can you be truly known and valued and appreciated for the, 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 the gem that you are? And the Bible says no. You are actually known and valued for the image bearer that you are by God and in community with those who follow him where you know others and are known in a living room by four or six or eight or ten other people. That's where you are known and valued and affirmed. And the Apostle Paul goes even further when he says, live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. Live quiet lives. How subversive is that? Is there anything about our culture that, that is going to encourage you to live a peaceful and quiet life? No. Project yourself, exalt yourself, become more visible, more celebrated, increase your fame. Live loud, overconnected, overstimulated lives. You want to be subversive in following Jesus? Live peaceful and quiet lives before God and others. Wait a second. Are you saying that my relationship to social media is a spiritual issue? Are you saying that my desire to be famous is a matter of discipleship? Yes, of course, you cannot live for your fame and your glory and God's glory at the same time. You can't walk in both of them. You can't think about both at the same time. And the culture says, hey, it's all about being young and beautiful. Think almost obsessively about your outward appearance and what your youth entitles you to. And the Bible says, hey, uh, the Lord actually doesn't look at the things that people look at. 
How disappointing is that? The Lord looks at the heart. And within this image-driven culture, ladies, we recognize that you are under a unique type of cultural pressure. Because what the culture says to our women of all ages is that a woman's worth and value is in her physical beauty. And the women who fall victim to that mentality are dying. And the Bible says, no, 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 no. Charm and, and beauty are fleeting. They're, they're quickly evaporating. But a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. And the culture is not going to praise these types of men and women. It, it simply will not. It is not built that way. But we do. It, it's part of flipping all of this stuff on its head. And Jesus gathers his disciples and he says, Hey, don't run around anxiously worrying about what type of clothes you will wear and how you will look and how you will present yourself to the world and how you will measure up to their standard of beauty like the pagans do. That's, that's their game. But you're not like them. You, you follow me now and, and, and you operate on something else entirely and you cannot serve the world you cannot run their rat race and live for the inbreaking kingdom of God at the same time. It can't be done. And the world says, hey, life is all about getting rich. And the Bible says, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people, eager for money, placing it above Jesus, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many, what? Griefs. In other words, they are now miserable because of the choice that they've made. And Jesus, again, in Sermon on the Mount, says, No one can serve two masters. Either you will love one and hate the other, or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot love, you cannot live for both God and money. And you can almost hear behind it Jesus saying, well, which do you love? Which one do you love most? And if you have trouble answering that question, you will know when Jesus calls. When he calls you, you will know which one you love more. And, and, and that's what's happening in this morning's passage. He calls the young man and he says, hey, you really want the full thing? You really want eternal life? Toss out all these idols and come follow me. And we're told that the young man left sad because he had great wealth. That, that in this moment, he was sad because his wealth owned him and not the other way around. There is a way of living that says, Jesus owns me and therefore my money. And there's another way of living that says my money or even hope that one day in the future I might have money. That thing owns me and therefore Jesus cannot. You, you, you have to choose. And when Jesus calls, you, you will know in your heart what you are most devoted to or in too many cases, what you are most enslaved to. The rich young ruler is an American. 
And if our first problem is thinking that eternal life is a thing, and, and our second problem is thinking that we are good enough in and of ourselves to be recipients of that thing, then our third problem is that we have all of this other stuff that we tend to value more than the person who is that thing. Our idols of money and sex and power and youth and fame eclipse the only thing that will truly satisfy. And we will do anything to defend our idols. Anything. In fact, I think our idolatry is the fuel behind our agnosticism. Why is it that Americans are increasingly confused when it comes to God? Why is it that so many of us say that we don't know if God is real? Or that you can't know if God is real? Or that we do know that God is real, but He can't be known? in any real meaningful way. He must be incomprehensible. He must be beyond grasping. He must be beyond relationship. And when you hear that, it almost sounds reverent, doesn't it? But in all reality, far too often, we, we just don't want to know Him. We, we don't want God to be knowable. We don't want God to be comprehensible. I, I, I don't want God to be near. Because if he is, then the ball is in my court and my idols are at stake. Now it's decision time. But if God is unknowable and he is distant, then I now have permission to hold my idols close. We live in a nation full of rich young rulers. But curiously, we don't have a lot of conversations like this one in Matthew 19. Because we'd rather avoid the conversation altogether. We don't talk to Jesus and go away sad because we don't want to talk to Jesus at all. We'd rather pretend he's not there. We would rather avert our eyes and walk right by. No, 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 that's not God. Couldn't be. God's unknowable. He's, in, he's uncomprehensible. Let me live my life and, and stick God in this unknowable box in which he has no claim and he is no threat to my idols. And, and that way I can go on believing. Hey, this distant God, he doesn't have a problem with me. And I'm moral enough to enter the kingdom of heaven. And, and if there is a God, he won't reject me. And in the process, we are rejecting him. The issue it is not that God is turning up his nose at our moral efforts. The issue is that he is the resurrection and he is the life. Eternal life is not a thing. It is a person. And you can't have Jesus without Jesus. You're trying to separate two things that cannot be separated. It's not that God is exclusive or judgmental. It's that God is eternal life. And so what He does is give freely of Himself to every man, woman, and child who would desire Him, who would desire that life. He, he is poured out on the cross for all to inherit at, at no cost but humility. And yet, what we love to do is to reject God 
in hopes that we can somehow inherit eternal life apart from him or, or as a distant gift unrelated to him. And Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. And, and instead of trusting him, we reject him because he doesn't align with our universalist thinking. We think that everyone should be able to have eternal life just because they followed their own internal self-created moral code or because they tried really hard at whatever religion they were a part of. But whether we recognize it or not, what we're saying is that we think people should be able to receive Jesus without Jesus. And God's on the other side. And, and, and he's saying, it's me. It, it's just me. What you need is me. And guess what? Here I am. Poured out for you. And for your benefit, anyone can, can, can inherit eternal life. And you don't have to be rich or popular or famous or in the in, you don't have to be anything except for humble. I give of myself to everyone who asks. And in the midst of that miracle, we turn up our nose and say, well, I'm more moral than my neighbor. And, and I think that should be enough. I don't think I should have to come to you to receive you and we actually reject him as a result of our own mixed up thinking and, and as a result of all the other things that have a greater claim on our life we reject him in our youth and we reject him in our wealth or, or our hopeful wishes of the wealth that we don't have and, and we reject him in our fame because we can't stand the idea that he might take center stage and that we might lose that spot. And the young man left sad because he knows that, that all of that stuff owned him. And you know what? Right in the midst of it, we, we keep going back to this mentality. Oh, well, God rejected him. And God's rejecting people. But that's not the case. People are rejecting God. And it actually says in the Gospel of Mark that Jesus looked at him, at this rich young ruler, and loved him deeply, genuinely, truly loved him. I would die for that man. I would give anything to have that man with me in eternity. In no way, shape, or form is God rejecting you? Is God rejecting, uh, is God rejecting your neighbor? No, 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 no. God looks at them and loves them and says, here I am. Come follow me. And yet, too many of us are like the rich young ruler and that we feel powerless to turn down our idols. He, he left sad. He knows I just got owned and there's nothing I can do about it. I am powerless in the face of my own wealth. I, I cannot move past it. And so he left sad. And Jesus, based on his heart, was probably sad too. But it doesn't change reality. And I bet that there wasn't a day that went by that this rich young ruler didn't pause for a moment in his day and the empty routine and say, what if? What if? What if I'd said yes? What if I'd, what if I'd followed? Oh, I wonder. And it may not have been until that young man was an old man 
and his youth and beauty had left him, and his fame and influence had faded, and he realized that he could not take his money with him, that he would die and it would all be given away, that he finally realized what a terrible mistake he had made. Perhaps it was only then that he realized that the life that he so desperately sought in his youth, in his fame, and in his wealth was not in any of those things, but Jesus of Nazareth, whom he had rejected in his idolatry. And perhaps by then it was too late. For he failed to see that eternal life is a person and not a thing. And that choosing anything over Jesus is a bad choice in the end. And so as we close, I'll invite the band back up and uh, I'm going to pray for us this morning. And I'm going to pray uh, that we would not make the same mistake. Because the reality is that I could teach this message in every state and nation in the world. And in few places would it be more relevant than it is for us right here, right now. Of all of the, of the billions of disciples of Jesus worldwide, we are the most likely to, to, to fall to these forces. And so I'm going to pray for us this morning uh, that we would see Jesus for who he is, that we would actually see the person who is the resurrection, who is the life, and that nothing else that we could possibly have or possess or pursue would compromise our discipleship to him. Let's pray. Let's pray.